everyone. Welcome to today's episode of What's a Crime with Gornia and Gemma. Hello. So for today's episode, um, the events of this crime happened a little bit closer to home. This is an Irish true crime. Um, it occurred in Grange Gorman in Dublin. Um, have you heard of this case, by the way, the Grange Gorman murders? I actually haven't when you said we were doing the Grange Gorman murders. Like, I heard... Some of the details I've heard of, but I I didn't know the full extent of this. Um, It is a little bit graphic. I'm going to spare some of the detail, but it's a shocking one. Okay. At 8pm on the evening of Thursday, the 6th of March, 1997, Anne Mernick left her house on one Orchard View to attend a bingo session in the parish hall nearby. As she was leaving, she said bye to the two ladies she was living with, Sylvia Shields and Mary Callanan. So, number one Orchard View was a two-story, four-bedroom house on Upper Grange Gorman in Dublin. It was almost directly opposite the entrance to St. Brendan's Psychiatric Hospital. So, the residents of this house and some other houses nearby were, for the most part, long-term psychiatric patients many of whom at one point had been inpatients in St. Brendan's. So the aim of this sort of community housing was that through living in the community with, you know, normal conditions... Independent living. Exactly. They could assist patients in their reintegration in society and live as independently as possible. Yeah. So Mary Callanan was 61 years old. She had been an inpatient in St. Brendan's since 1966, suffering with paranoid schizophrenia. She had been an only child and her upbringing had been loving and happy. She was now working as a general operative in a sheltered workshop in the Finglas area. And she had graduated to independent living and maintained a really good relationship with her colleagues. The other lady, Sylvia Shields, was 60 years old. She had been admitted to St. Brendan's for a short period in 1980 and then readmitted in 1983 with a diagnosis of chronic schizophrenia and severe borderline personality disorder. In 1987, she had been made redundant by the civil service and with a modest pension, she lived frugally. She was well-liked and described as bubbly and a friendly person. And like Mary, she had a really good upbringing with a close-knit family all of whom she stayed in touch with. The third lady, Anne Mernick, was the third resident. Um, She had only moved into the house in 1996, which was the year sort of prior to these events. She was considerably younger than the other two residents at age 46. However, they all mixed well together and were close friends. So she came to the attention of the psychiatric services at age 22 when she unsuccessfully tried to take her own life. She was then diagnosed as having borderline personality disorder and epilepsy. She also um, had a tendency to self-harm and revealed that she had been sexually abused as a child. God, perfect. I know. So that evening... Anne had won 20 point at the bingo session, so she was buzzing, she was in great form, and she called into the chip shop on her way home and bought two bags of chips, one for herself and one for the nurse on night duty in one of the other flats. That was like a, a habit that she had, she was very um, kind. Right, so she bought chips for the nurse. I love Anne. Can I, I just say like If what? I was the nurse on duty, I'd be like, there's Anne coming, delighted. I know. So... 
After delivering the chips to the nurse, um, she went home and discovered that the two girls were in bed. So she called into Sylvia's room for a quick chat. She told her about her good luck at the bingo, how she was delighted with her 20 pound. And then she carried on to bed. She didn't bother waking um, Mary because she thought she might be asleep and the other girls had work in the morning. So she goes on to bed at 11.30 p.m. So Anne, like myself, actually encountered great difficulty in falling asleep. So when she went to bed, she used to always listen to a cassette player um, through earphones following some advice from some doctors that it would help her sleep. And also we later discovered that she had actually taken sleeping tablets on this particular night as well. Okay. So the next morning on Friday the 7th of March 1997, she gets up at 6am. She goes downstairs to make breakfast for herself and the other two girls. When she went downstairs, she saw that the handbag that she had left on the coffee table in the front room before she went to bed was lying on the ground at the foot of the stairs with its contents strewn all over the floor. So she sort of steps over it and she keeps walking to the kitchen. And then she noticed that there was a light left on in the dining room and none of the ladies ever left the lights on overnight. She then noticed what appeared to be smears of blood on the light switch. So she starts to become worried, walks into the kitchen, turns on the light and noticed the curtain blowing in and out of the window and one of the drawers had been pulled out and was lying on the floor. So it's worth noting that the house had actually been burgled into before in December, just a few months prior. The house had been broken into and although nothing of value was ever taken and no one was ever charged, Anne obviously assumes that the same thing has happened again. Yeah. And she, you know, she's frightened. She runs up the stairs screaming Sylvia's name and bursts into her room. The sight that greeted her in Sylvia's room went on to stay with Anne forever. Sylvia was lying on the bed. Her nightdress was pushed up as far as her chest and there was blood everywhere. Oh, God. Anne approached her and shook her gently, but her throat had been slashed and she knew that she was dead. She obviously was panic, was terrified, feared that the person that done this might still be in the home, ran downstairs, out the front door and out into the middle of the road. She then runs to number five where the night nurse on duty resigned and screamed for help. She was hysterical and when the nurse finally calmed her down enough to make sense of what she was saying, she immediately requested security for assistance. When the two security men entered the house, they entered Sylvia's room and saw her body partially on the bed, her feet planted on the floor. And then when they entered Mary's room, it appeared to be empty, but as they were turning to leave, one of the men glanced down and saw a pair of legs on the ground on the opposite side of the bed, protruding between the bed and the wall. Oh, God. So they kind of don't want to, you know, touch anything. Yeah. They're, they're scared. They immediately contact the guardy. And God love Anne. She was, you know, so distressed. She as was, you would be. Of course. She was um, hospitalized and was treated for shock. So when the guards were dispatched to the scene, a gruesome sight awaited them. So there was two guards along with a guard a recruit on what would have been one of his first crime scenes. And he actually handed in his resignation a few weeks later. So it kind of just shows you how gruesome that this was. They arrived at around 6.20 a.m. And the sight that greeted the guards and the detectives um, will stay etched in their minds forever. 
So the chief state pathologist at the time, Professor Harbison, he uncharacteristically described the scene as carnage. In all of his 20 years of service and in all of the crime scenes he had visited, he had never seen anything like this. Quote, what we have just witnessed in that premises is outside my experience, built up in almost 20 years of visits to crime scenes and the examination of injuries inflicted on one human being by another. So the full extent of their injuries is very graphic. And like I said before, I am going to spare some of the detail because uh, myself actually researching this, it is quite upsetting. So Mary had multiple stab wounds and her throat had been cut. Her body and genital area had also been graphically mutilated. Jesus Christ. The object that was used uh, was still inside her body when it was discovered. Oh, stop. Sylvia, I know, it's it's really, and I, that's me leaving quite, anyway. Sylvia had also suffered a similar fate with multiple stab wounds, her throat cut and severe damage and injuries to her genital area. So it was assumed the object had been used on Sylvia Oh my first. God. So, so it was, you what? can understand why that professor, why all the detectives were just horrified by this crime scene. Those poor women. I like, know. Innocent women asleep in their bed. And doing so well in life. In life, I know. All of the weapons that had been used originated from the house, suggesting that the perpetrator had been unarmed when he entered the scene. The monster, more like it? Yes. A criminal profiler that was assigned the task of profiling their perpetrator drafted a report on the 14th of April, 1997. So it stated that both crimes were the work of one culprit. Given the mutilation of the genital area, this was a sexual attack. The perpetrator would lack sexual experience. The selection of the victim type, obviously being two elderly females, suggested a culprit who was socially isolated and inadequate. The culprit may reside or work near the scene and the offender was extremely dangerous and likely to re-offend. Oh my God. So he, this profiler suggested that for the moment he would feed on, on these, you know, mental images of the murders and that would keep his like the memory horrible. Yes. What his, he did. his depraved mind, you know, that would keep him occupied for a while until he sought further release in the slaughter of more victims. So it was absolutely crucial that this guy was caught like straight away. And it's also sort of, um, to note is just as well, although that this is, you know, said by a profiler that that's not 100%. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you don't yeah, you yeah, count yeah. on that 100%. Yeah, yeah. Like it, he could be different in, in some ways. Yeah. So there was a partial footprint impression made on the lino at the crime scene. And from examination of the footprint, it was established that it had been made by a boot with a pattern similar to that found on boots bearing the Caterpillar brand. So Caterpillar boots were expensive at the time and were unlikely to belong to someone that was, you know, say not well off, homeless, didn't have access to money to buy them. And it's also worth noting that there was not a lot of DNA evidence or or really anything to be um, established at this crime scene. And another really sinister find that's so terrifying is the fact that Anne, the only surviving victim, um, when her bedroom was scientifically examined, blood staining was found on the inside of her bedroom door and also on the edge of the mattress. This blood was identified as belonging to Mary Callanan. 
So this can only mean that this culprit had gone into Anne's room while she was asleep after he had murdered the first two ladies. And what, just stood looking at her and in the bed? must have stood watching her. And, and we don't know what sort of changed in his mind between the murders of the first two victims and when he entered Anne's room and, and why he left her unharmed. Um, that the, is so creepy. So creepy and so terrifying. To know that he was sta- in your room watching you while you slept. And, you know, the detective sort of summarised that the attacker must have had a certain cooling off period after the frenzied attack. And then when he entered Anne's room, you know, he ultimately just decided not to kill her. And I would imagine that the the cassette playing and the earphones and the sleeping tablets is what saved Anne's life because she obviously didn't hear anything and didn't decide to get up and check and investigate what, oh what was God. going on. Right. So the guards learned that a fortnight before the murders, a man had been observed behaving in a suspicious manner opposite the scene. He had been lingering outside the house and a number of witnesses had also recalled seeing this person. A sketch was made showing a possible likeness of this man and the publication of the sketch of the suspect created a huge interest among the public and sightings were reported as far away as Galway, Cork, Waterford and Dublin. So as the, as the investigation progressed through the spring and into the summer of 1997, a number of people who, you know, just for one reason or another became persons of interest. So persons of interest can come to the attention of the Gardaí in a number of ways, you know, including just information from members of the public, prison officers, probation officers and information from the Gardaí themselves. So that may be nothing more than a suggestion from an informant who feels that there is something strange about the person that they are nominating. Right. And that is how Dean Lyons became a person of interest. So, who is Dean Lyons? So, on Saturday the 26th of July, 1997, shortly after 9am, two guards entered the army hostel in Dublin to speak to Dean Lyons. Dean Lyons was 24 years of age. He was a known heroin addict and had no fixed abode. He had been nominated through the grapevine by another homeless man as someone that might have some information. And the guardie found Dean Lyons in the army hostel and asked if he would accompany them back to the police station. He readily agreed and he accompanied them back to Bridewell Station. At the station, throughout the interview, Dean was given a cup of coffee and his interview began easy, relaxed, and he developed, you know, a a sort of banterful relationship with the guards. They discussed freely his substance addiction problem and the difficulties that this had caused in his home and you know his involvement in crime and his lifestyle and it was really more of a conversation than sort of a structured interview. Okay. He couldn't recall where he might have been on the night of the 5th or 6th of March. He suggested that you know I might have been in that army hostel that you just picked me up in and they're like well your name didn't appear on the attendance sheet and he sort of shrugs his shoulders and he's like okay well you know I don't know where I was to be honest but vehemently denied being involved in the murders he continuously smoked cigarettes and remained relaxed and friendly however to the amazement of the guardie his demeanour changed in an instant and gone was the casual banter that had been established between them 
during the morning and he became visibly upset and nervous when asked if he was all right, if there was something bothering him. He began to cry in a low voice and he said, I killed the two old ladies and he added that he was sorry. So in a matter of minutes, a sort of mundane interview that was just sort of being carried out to ensure that all the necessary boxes were ticked, Dean Lyons had suddenly gone from a person of interest to culprit. So at the outset, he said that he had attempted to burgle the house. And when he was in the house, he stumbled and made a noise. The noise appeared to disturb one of the occupants. And when a woman came out, he attacked her. And he couldn't recall what weapon he used. He said that he got into the house through a little window at the side of the house, which he smashed. When the guards repeated the description of like the side of the house, he responded, well, it was sort of round by the back. Through various interviews, he stated that his mind went blank. He would make this remark at a time when he ought to have been in a position to provide more detailed admissions. He often contradicted his first statement. He basically said that he stabbed one woman and when asked about a second woman, corrected himself and said, oh yeah, the other woman as well. When questioned on where the assault took place, he would reply, the landing. And when sort of they were like, well, the bodies were actually found in the bedrooms. He's like, oh yeah, I killed them in the landing and then I, I took them into the bedrooms. But right, okay, so I'm just getting flashbacks from previous cases that you've told me about and I just feel like... Like the Jessica Bagan case. Exactly. He didn't do it, did he? Well, <laughs> you're going to find out. <laughs> so, well, he's like, yeah, I dragged them in. And then they are like, well, the blood spatter suggested that the women were actually murdered in their bedrooms. He was unable to describe the internal layout of the house and was unaware that there was a third woman in the house. When his distraught parents visited him in jail, they told him not to be telling any more of his lies. Tell the truth. Make sure this is no more of your lies. So although he had no fixed abode and he struggled with a heroin addiction, he was still very close to his family. Yeah. They had pretty much done so much for him. Yeah. And, you know, it was kind of at the point where they couldn't do anymore. Yeah. They were distraught. His parents were crying like his father, you know. It's so sad it's for them. so sad for them. And, you know, if he did do it, like how could their son, they were like, there's no way. So... These discrepancies were noted by some of the Gardaí and almost all the information I have gotten on this case is in a book that I read. Um, One of the guards involved in the investigation, Alan Bailey, um, he is one of the guards that sort of brought it to the attention of his superiors that he felt like there was a lot of discrepancies here. And they were basically ignored. It was shrugged off. He made this admission free of, of his free will, basically. Yeah. So on the 27th of July, Dean Lyons was charged with the murder of Mary Callanan with the intent of adding the murder of Sylvia Shields as well in time. So just a little bit about Dean Lyons. Um, he was born on the 20th of April, 1973, son of John and Sheila Lyons. He was fourth in a family of six children, grew up in Tala, West Dublin, did quite well at school socially, but struggled academically from the outset. So in today's terms, he would probably be classified as having a learning disability. 
teachers remember him to, you know, that he loved being noticed and not really worrying about whether he was being noticed for good things or bad things as long as he got attention. So he craved attention. Yes. Once when his father had cardiac problems, he himself actually feigned a heart attack in school and he did it so convincingly that the staff believed he was genuinely ill. And on another time, he... I don't know why, but he feigned a spinal injury and persisted with this pretense until he reached the hospital where he jumped off the stretcher. Also, when a female friend was once caught shoplifting, he insisted to the detectives that he was responsible until his lie was exposed when CCTV footage was viewed. Okay, so these are all like to me cries, yeah, cries of help. Cries for help, exactly. Cries for help from him. Exactly. So... Now, I am going to basically um, jump from that to something that's going to seem very unrelated, but it's going to tie in in the end. Okay. Okay. So, in early 1996, Catherine and Carl Doyle, aged 28 and 29 respectively, a Dublin couple secured a country cottage for themselves and their four small children in the townland of Carran near Ballantubber, County Roscommon. So this is a completely unrelated couple talking. Um, I'm talking about something completely separate. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned that. <laughs> I know, but just in case you got confused. <laughs> you get it. <laughs> so they were a close, loving couple, and they moved to a rural area to give their children a quality of life that might not have been available to them had they remained in Dublin. On the weekend of the 15th to the 17th of August, 1997... Catherine's younger sister, Sarah Jean, who was 19, was coming to spend a few days with them and she would be bringing her five-month-old child and her new partner, Mark Nash. She had met Mark in a nightclub in Harcourt Street in Dublin and within a month... Coppers? (laughs) We knew you were going to say that. (laughs) I don't know, I just... Well, Well, I assume so. Um, So they had met within a, a month and had moved in together. Sarah right, Jane, they moved quick. Very quickly, yeah. And Sarah Jane and Mark arrived at the Doyle's house at around 9pm that night and the children were already asleep upstairs. And so the four adults stayed, you know, downstairs just drinking, chatting in the living room. The two women decided to go upstairs and sort of sort out sleeping arrangements. Carl had fallen asleep on the sofa um, with his, you know, packet of cigarettes and his lighter resting in his lap. When the women were upstairs, they heard a noise from the living room, followed by the sound of someone walking up the stairs. So they assumed it was either Mark or Carl, you know, coming up to check on them or, you know, see what they were doing. And the bedroom door burst in. They both turned around and saw Mark standing there with a crazy look in his eyes. He carried what appeared to be a hammer in his hand. What? And without any warning, he lashed out, striking Sarah Jane on the back of the head. Oh my God, this is her boyfriend, her new boyfriend, Mark. Yes, yes. Calmly saying to her, you have to die. So Catherine, her sister, bravely intervened, threw herself between Mark and her sister. And that's when he turned his attention to her and and began to beat her repeatedly (gasps) around the head with the hammer. Sarah Jane tried to save her sister, but Mark beat her away with a hammer, landing a number of further blows on her head. Sarah Jane stumbles down the stairs to wake Carl, so she last seen him asleep on the sofa. She runs toward him, screaming, 
um, to come and help Catherine. And when she starts to shake him, she's seen that he had been stabbed through the heart and he was oh dead. Oh my God. This is a horror movie. I, it's terrifying. She then realised the noise upstairs had ceased and heard the steps <gasps> of someone coming down the stairs and realised that Mark, Jane. Mark, having finished with her sister, was now coming to get her. Oh no. So he began calling out her name in a calm, sing-song manner, which is so creepy. What? It's literally like a mo- It's like, here's Johnny. I know. And then, so she's like, if I stay in this house, I'm going to die. But also... All the children were in the house, six defenseless children. So she doesn't really know what to do. She runs outside but doesn't want to go too far. So hides in the long grass in the back garden. To her horror, she sees Mark step out of the house and he stood so close to her where she was hiding that she feared he might hear her breathing. I'm I'm actually holding my breath. She said he began to calmly call out her name asking her to come back into the house saying that he was sorry everything will be all right and when he received no response he began to scream her name and run around the garden so like this is just so terrifying after a few moments he jumps over the ditch into the surrounding garden and into the nearby fields so Sarah Jane, injured and terrified, knows she has to get help. She makes her way to their neighbour's house where they were asleep. When they heard someone knocking and banging at the door, they heard a female voice crying out for help. And on opening the door, they find a young woman standing on the step, bleeding from wounds to her head and face, covered in earth and grass. And they immediately phoned the guardie. I can't believe I've, I, I don't remember hearing about, like, about this. So I, I only really remember this guy's name. Mm. I don't really I had no idea of the details of this case because it is terrifying so the guards enter the house and they are taken are the children okay the children thankfully are fine they're taken aback by sort of this this awful crime scene and the body of Carl still sitting upright on the sofa Catherine's body is now in the kitchen lying on its back in the middle of the kitchen floor so they you know he he dragged her body downstairs why? We don't know if he was planning on doing something else to her oh body. Oh my God. He's a ge- and thank Jesus. God, thank the Lord, none of the children were harmed. But they did find the terror-stricken six-year-old sitting up in bed, cradling one of the younger children oh, who lay asleep in his God. arms. He's seen the whole thing. And I, like the purr thing must there are no wor- There are absolutely no, no words to describe that. That is dis- heartbreaking. No. It's... Oh. So... The post-mortem examination of Carl Doyle's body revealed he had received four stab wounds to the chest and died as a result of shock and blood loss. Catherine's body was found in the kitchen and she had died from bleeding into her chest as a result of multiple stab wounds which had been penetrating her lungs and heart. It was established that during all of the assaults, Mark had used a variety of weapons that were all weapons of opportunity which he had gotten from the home. So the search for him begins immediately after Sarah Jane provides the guards with his name and description. And thankfully, he was apprehended on a stolen bicycle on the way to Galway. So Sorry. He was cycling yeah, to Galway. So Where from? Roscommon. 
where so, these events took place. So basically, on reading the book, he'd stopped in sort of all these places and, and was asking people for water, asking, you know, stopping in their house knocking, can I have a glass of water? Can I use your phone? All these sorts of... On the way to Gaul. So he was like, I'm just going to cycle to Gaul. What was his plan? I have no idea what his plan was, but I assume if he got to Galway, he would have a better chance of getting away with it because obviously Galway's a city. Oh, well, come on, it's not that big, like, if well, you're looking for it. Yeah. So, and also how terrifying he was stopping at people's houses. And like, people know. were obviously, it's Ireland, they're like, oh, I'll give I this come man. in, no bother, I like, want God, a cup of tea. He seemed a bit, yeah. seemed a bit odd, but the poor the fella poor was thirsty. Like. Yeah, he was on his bike, where was he going? I. So, he casually explained the cruel and callous way that he had killed Carl and Catherine. To the guards. To he the was, guards. So they caught him and he comes yeah. in and he's like, yeah, he's it was like, me. Yeah, it was me. I killed him. I, and he explains in detail about what he'd done. It was like he was bragging almost. But it didn't end there. He went on to tell them that on a previous occasion, he had stabbed two women while they slept in their home in Dublin. He made a statement to provide information about a double murder he had committed some five months earlier in Dublin. A detailed summary of events of what occurred at Orchard View that night. He was able to give a detailed layout of the home, a detailed description of what each woman looked like, the injuries that they sustained and how they were murdered. He described how a third woman slept with black earphones on and went on into her room and decided not to harm her and left. Oh my God, he did. So it was him. So the fact that Anne wore headphones was not a known detail in this crime scene. So it was pretty much something that the guards kept close to themselves. Yeah. And the fact that he had specified that they were black indicated that he was there. He told guards a cloud had come over him that drove him to kill saying that while he had carried out the murders, he was not responsible for his actions. So, on one hand, the police had Dean Lyons, who seemed sort of unsure about how many women he killed. Yeah, right, Dean didn't do it. On the other hand, they had Mark Nash, who, having already killed two people, went on to tell the guards he had broken the bottom right-hand pane in a four-pane window, climbed through the window, observed a large pedal bin that there had been a black coloured television in the sitting room and his description of both victims unnervingly accurate admitting to having murdered Sylvia first when she was still in her bed so these details of even the home yeah like there's no doubt about that Dean had no idea that you know even that there was a bin that it was a four he didn't even know there was a third woman he was like and he sort of blamed that on well, I blanked out, you yeah, know, yeah. heroin, blah, blah, blah. Whereas this guy is like, I, I, I can, remember everything. She's wearing headphones. I stood over her bed. So a little bit of information about Mark. He was born in Yorkshire in the United Kingdom in 1973. Interestingly, actually, just four days before the birth of Dean Lyons. In 1995, he met a partner and they had a baby daughter in October 1996. He was arrested for a number of drug related offences and he fled to Ireland and based himself in Dublin. With, with her. So one of his past convictions occurred when he was only 16 years old in 1989 and it was the sexual assault of a girl as she walked home from a local dance. Now, Mark then went on to actually redact his statement. There was a lot of politics involved in this case. One of the superintendents actually directed that the officers continue with the preparation of a file recommending that Dean Lyons is still charged for the murder of Mary Callanan and the murder of Sylvia Sheets. Why? So even though it's quite clear to the officers involved, 
that, you know, Mark was their killer. And like I said, the, the author of this book, um, Alan Bailey, when their, concerns, when their concerns were raised, they were basically told that their differences were undermining the investigation. And they were reminded that Dean had confessed on video and in writing to his mother that he had committed the heinous crime. Quote, what more do you want? He asked. So I think that part of it is not wanting to admit that they've got the wrong guy. Been a mistake. Yeah, yeah. So despite this admission by Mark Nash, Dean actually remained in prison for a further seven months before the chief state solicitor finally withdrew the murder charges against him. Thank God. An internal Garda inquiry was held about why these admissions were even made in the first place. In April 1998, the DPP directed that the proceedings against Dean Lyons be discontinued and um, an internal Garda inquiry was held about why, you know, these admissions were made about the Grange Gorman murders. And um, it was essentially found that he was sort of very suggestible and he gleaned information about the murders while he was being questioned yeah, about yeah. them. So they were sort of asking him things and while they were asking, they were given details of to which in turn he was using and saying, yeah. actually... And then basically he just inserted those facts into a bogus admission and almost as like a, a, a an attention-seeking exercise, yeah. a cry yeah. for... So, which is really, really sad as well. Dean actually moved to England in 1999 after taking part in a treatment programme. His family sort of be- said that, you know, he wanted to get as far away from everything as possible. And sadly, he passed away on the 14th of September 2000 believed that he relapsed and died of a heroin overdose. Oh my God. I know. In February 2005, his family were issued an apology by the Gardaí following an inquest and investigation into his admissions. Heartbreaking for his family now. Like, and so heartbreaking sad. for his family, I know. And, you know, which I find so strange. The director of public prosecutions decided not to proceed with the charging of Mark Nash for Sylvia and Mary's murders Why? following the death of Dean Lyons. So basically because he re- redacted his statement, the, and they just sort of were like, well, there's, if there's no evidence, if unless some new startling evidence comes into account, he's not going to be charged with the oh murders. Oh my God, he admitted it and he like had everything in detail. I know. He murdered again after it. He was remanded in custody when charged with the two Doyle murders shortly after his arrest and thankfully he was convicted of the Doyle killings in October 1998 and jailed for life. That's not where it ends. So although there was very little DNA evidence that could be used to garner a conviction in the Grange Gorman murders, Mark stated that he had been wearing a velvet jacket on the night of the murders. A jacket and a pair of Caterpillar brand boots belonging to Mark Nash were taken and analysed by the State Forensic Science Laboratory. However, nothing of evidential value was ever revealed from that. Preliminary testing of the jacket revealed the presence of a tiny blood stain on the lowest button of the right-hand cuff. Now, the amount of blood on that button was too small for them to be able to grip it, so it was of no evidential value. However... In May 2009, after a full audit, the button was re-examined and they found a full DNA profile on the threads that exactly matched the blood sample taken from Sylvia Shields. <sighs> so at this point, the laboratory asked for the, the jacket um, to be returned to them. 
Under conditions, they opened the seam in the sleeve of the jacket and inside they found a further minute trace of dry blood. When profiled, it was found to be an exact match for Mary Callan. <gasps> so obviously it was sort of an advancement in DNA. Yeah. So they have finally had this evidence. And, and DNA testing. And, and DNA. And God love those poor women, their families. Yeah. You know, all those years of... Of him sort of not, even if he was in jail, that's not the point. It's yep. like they needed closure yep. and, you know, to, to prove that he had done it. So a trial was held in March 2015, 18 years after the murders for the murder of Mary Callanan and Sylvia Shields. During the trial, the court were read two letters, which he actually wrote on, on his way to Galway on the bike. He wrote letters to Sarah Jane and... The first letter was made up of a sealed envelope addressed to, quote, head injuries at Beaumont Hospital, because that's obviously where she was treated oh after he God, had attacked yes. her. And the envelope included £140. Like, was he going to just try and buy her silence? Or? And what did it say in the letters? The first letter read, quote, I went mad. This is the second time I've gone this way, and it led to the same thing before. I'm insane and I don't deserve to live. I'm so sorry to all of you. And by the time this reaches you, I will be dead. I fucking flipped. I can't think. I've gone mad and I can't help myself. Who would have thought it could have ever possibly gone this way? Sorry, Sarah. I shouldn't say it, but I love you. Goodbye, Mark. Like, what do you make of that? It's the whole thing of like... Was he a psychopath? But Could he have got help when he was younger? Or is, was he just born? But the whole thing of like, during the actual murder, he's like, Sarah, I'm sorry. Aye. You know, that sort of... And the way. fact that he redacted his statement. Exactly. So he wasn't, he wasn't showing any remorse. And the fact that he never came forward after the exactly, Grinch Gorman yeah. Like, this yeah. guy, there's nothing... Yeah. Like, there's, yeah. he's there's no a monster. He's... Yeah. He's, oh, everything about him and the gruesome way, especially I know. the Grange Gorman murders, yeah. like it was really, really gruesome. Thankfully, a central criminal court jury unanimously found Nash guilty after four hours of deliberations following a 48 day trial. And he was then given mandatory life sentence for the murders by Mr. Justice Carl Morn on April 20th, 2015. Like... This case just, it was so long and drawn out. There was a lot of politics involved and, you know, it was sort of just, as Alan Bailey actually put it in a, in a quote in a, in a paper, it was the innocence of the victims that gets me. Yeah. They were everybody's mother or grandmother. Like these women asleep in their beds, you know, it just doesn't bear to think about. And like that poor couple, you know, oh giving their God. children and a their children, life. and now their ch- their children are left with no, no parents, parents, and and, and then Jane. Sarah Jane and everything, everything. She's lost her sister, her brother in law, like has been through this traumatic experience. It's everything, everything about this is yeah. just heartbreaking. There's so many victims. Yeah. Thankfully, Mark Nash remains in prison to this day, where he belongs. Okay, guys, we really hope that you enjoyed this episode. And sadly, that will be the final episode of the first series of What's the Crime? 
but not to worry, there will be a second series coming very soon and we will keep you updated via social media on when that will be. So make sure to follow our page, What's the Crime? And we will talk to you all again very soon. So thanks so much to everyone who's listened to all the episodes so far. We can't get over the response. We're thrilled. I know it's hard to sit through Grania's voice. every week (laughs) but you've all done a really good job and yeah thanks so much we're completely overwhelmed and thanks again yeah bye